All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for a time of worship where we can lift our voices to you and hopefully uh, humble our hearts and attune our minds to the things that you are about. So I pray as we turn to your word now, to some of the questions, or to a question that Jesus asked, that God, we might be dialed in, and uh, more than anything, that we might be willing to follow you as you lead and adjust our lives accordingly. So God, we thank you for this time. We ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all God's people said together, amen. So this week I was at an airport and uh, just doing a short trip and I had something happen to me that has happened to just about every one of you who have been to an airport and that is I was walking down the aisle there and all of a sudden I hear this beep beep and the golf cart comes through. You've had that happen, right? And uh, whenever that golf cart comes through, you know that they're carrying a physically disabled person or an elderly person or some young guy faking it or something like that that just wants to get to the gate. And I've always found it interesting that nobody gets hurt by the golf cart because I don't know if you've noticed it, but they don't stop for anybody. They just beep and they expect that crowd to part. And sure enough, I've been in airports dozens, if not hundreds of times, I've never seen anybody get hurt because all of us have learned that when that golf cart comes, you have to make a quick decision to the right or to the left, but you're going to get out of the way. And sure enough, as it comes, it just parts the crowd like the parting of the Red Sea, and it goes on through. We started a series here a few weeks ago at our church called uh, The Questions That Jesus Asked. And with that visual of the golf cart in mind, that's exactly what we're doing in this series is we're allowing the questions of Jesus to, to make a, help us make a decision on whether we're going to the right or the left in our lives. To make a decision to not just stay status quo and stay in the middle, but to allow the questions of Jesus to, to be a fork in the road in our lives, to part our lives, if you will, to, to cause us to say we're either going to be serious about God and follow his ways or we're not. But that's what the questions of Jesus do for us. As I shared with you in the beginning of this series, Jesus asked uh, more than 80 questions in the Gospel of Matthew alone. And so I can't even imagine as you were to read Mark and Luke and John how many more questions you would find. But Jesus asked a lot of questions in this, when he was on this earth. And he asked questions that, that would cause us to have an answer in our lives to draw us more, to think more about God and the spiritual life. And today we come to one of the most relevant and 21st century oriented questions Jesus could have ever asked. I mean, it's almost like he thought of us here in Scottsdale in our day and age when he asked it. And it was the question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What a great question for our materialistic culture, right? Is not the body more than food, or is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And like so many of Jesus' questions, this is obviously a rhetorical question. I mean, it's the kind of question in which it's like, duh, the answer is already clear. Jesus didn't ask it so that we would say yes or no. He asked it for the sake of effect, to make a point. Because you see, folks, in asking this question, Jesus knew something about every human being, about every culture that's made up of human beings. He knew something about what's inside of us and the temptation and lore that each of us have. He knew, in short, that we all struggle with materialism in this fallen world of ours and that we are tempted to put way too much stock into the material world, the physical world, as opposed to the spiritual world. And so that's why Jesus asks this question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, before we go on to kind of explore the answers to these questions and the logic that Jesus 
uh, gives us in answering his own question here, I, I want us to all get on the same page with what I'm going to label a reality check. A reality check. And I just want you guys to give me a little bit of a head nod to this one because I want to make sure that none of us are in denial or in la-la land. And the reality check is this. Give me a click here, guys. And that is, can we all own this morning that America is a materialistic culture? Give me a head nod that you can all own that, okay? I'm not calling every one of you materialists, and I hope you're not calling me a materialist, but the reality is, like, fish swimming in somewhat polluted water. You and I live in a culture today that is very materialistic no matter how you slice it. And I'm not sharing that with you this morning. I'm asking you to own that so that we all feel guilty for it, as we'll see in a bit. The Bible doesn't say that to make us feel guilty. I mean, we have to be honest. But the reality is, is that no matter how you slice it, America is a very materialistic society. If you're not convinced, check this out. According to a study done a few years back by the United Nations Development Program, they found that the top 20% of the world's population in the highest income countries, which America is obviously one of those, utilize 86% of all total private consumption expenditures. Let that settle in a minute. 86%. We consume 86%, the top 20% of the world do, of all consumption. Well, what does that mean, you might ask? Well, we consume 45% of all meat and fish. We consume 58% of total energy, 74% of all telephone lines, 84% of all paper, and 87% of the world's vehicle fleet. Imagine that. 20% of the world controlling the vast resources of our material world. America is a material-rich and utilizing culture. Or maybe a more humorous way this will hit home to you. When I was living in Chicago a few years back doing my graduate work, there was a magazine called uh, Suburban Focus. And it was just a magazine for people who lived in the suburbs. And one time they ran a humorous and revealing piece called You're So Suburban If. You guys know what these are about? You know that You're So Suburban If, and then they finish the sentence for you. So see if any of these relate to you. You're so suburban if you have the luxury of a three-car garage, but not enough room for the cars in it. Any of you relate to that? Just like almost all of us, right? You're so suburban if you pick your dog's haircut out of a magazine. Anybody want to admit that one this morning? You're so suburban if you drive your van a block to get milk. I read that and I thought, no, it's four blocks, thank you, to get milk. You're so suburban if, this one hurts, your mortgage could balance the national debt of a third world country. Ooh, well, for some of us that might be true. And I love this last one. You're so suburban if you jog five miles a day but spend 30 minutes waiting for a closer parking space at the mall. Some of us relate to that too. Uh, the comedian George Carlin once said, the essence of life is to find a place to put all of your stuff. And sure enough, that's become almost the American mantra. America is a material-laden culture. As if these outward indicators were not enough, even our attitudes give us away. I thought this was hilarious. A few years ago, Adweek did a poll uh, and found that 80% of Americans admit that they would rather be rich than thin. Now think about that. 82% of Americans say that they'd rather be rich than thin. I look around and I think, if that's not a self-fulfilling prophecy, I don't know what is. Right? I mean, that's our culture today. We would rather value money than even our physical health. 
George Barna found the same thing in 1977. He's a pollster and he found that 51% of Christians and 54% of non-Christians feel that money is the status symbol of success in life and in America. And it's really true. I love how one pastor in a moment of self-confession put it. I read this a few years back. Listen to this. He says, I've been reading and rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice, but it's got me thinking. No matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, have any surgery, turn on a light, buy penicillin, hear a pipe organ, watch TV, wash dishes in running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly an airplane, sleep on an interspring mattress, or talk on the phone. And so if he was rich, what am I? And I've said that for years, folks. I've said for years that any of us who read the story of the rich young ruler immediately need to put ourselves in his shoes just by living in America. Because whether you're the creme de la creme in America or not, just by living in this country puts you in the top percentage of our entire world. No matter how you look at it, America is a materialistic culture. We just need to own this this morning if we're going to get the most out of Jesus' question before us. And again, i got to say, please hear this. I do not share this to make us feel unduly guilty or bad about the blessings that most of us have. Not at all. In fact, as we're going to see in just a minute here, having wealth and blessings is not wrong, and even enjoying them is not wrong. The Bible is not anti-ownership, and it's not anti-material per se. It's just that there is something, as we're going to see, very dangerous about a purely materialistic mindset, which many in our country have fallen into. And as we attempt to wrestle with Jesus' question here, we need to all realize and own that that lure and that temptation is before us each moment of each day. Now, once we get this understanding, once we own this reality check this morning, the question becomes, how do we make sense of Jesus' rhetorical question before us, right? What do we do with this question that he has put before us? And I want to suggest to you three things. Three things that Jesus himself shares with us in answer to his own question that if you will let them, will do nothing but give you a handle on how to view all the material and physical stuff in your life that you've been blessed with and even prevent them from ruining your soul. These three things are, are a primer on materialism, if you will. It's like materialism 101 that Jesus shares with us here, but this is good stuff if we're ever going to avoid falling into the trap that our country puts before us. And here's the first thing Jesus teaches us, and that is that material things don't last while spiritual things last forever. Have you realized that yet in life? Material things as much as we like them, don't last. They don't fulfill our soul like we thought they can and should, while spiritual things do, and they last forever. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, about three-quarters of the way through the entire Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Also, I'll put the Scripture up here on the screen. And as you turn to Matthew 6, we're going to start at verse 19. And look at what Jesus says, again, right in the context of him asking this question before us. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Now, now, folks, one of the things you need to understand about the Sermon on the Mount, which is what these words are in, it's three chapters long, the Sermon on the Mount, is that it's one of the most logical progressions in all of Scripture. In other words, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, is treating you and I as intelligent beings made in the image of God. He's assuming that we have minds. He's assuming that we can reason about things. And the Sermon on the Mount is one big logical sermon on why certain things of spiritual value should matter most as opposed to certain things of this world that shouldn't matter as much. Now, with that understanding, treating us as intelligent and smart people, the logic of what Jesus is saying here is flawless. He's saying that in light of spiritual realities like God being your father and heaven being a very real place that you will go to as you trust and follow Jesus, he's saying don't amass and store up treasures, really anything of a value for yourself, whether it be food, clothing, money, or earth, or, or, or money, or anything like it, on this earth. In other words, he's contrasting the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And he's saying the spiritual realm, is, or the physical realm, is all the things that you see around you. It's the earth, it's the material, it's the physical world. And you don't want to tie your heart too much to that. You're smarter than that. You're more intelligent than that. Think about it. Tie your heart to spiritual things which have much more value and are going to last forever. And then he goes on to tell us why. He says, because moth and rust destroy and thieves steal. I love it. Jesus is giving us two independent principles on material things here, both of which he's trying to tell us they just don't last. What I call the deteriorate and depreciate principle and the it might get stolen principle. Think about these two things, folks. First, think about the deteriorate and depreciate principle. Jesus is simply telling us that laying up treasures on this earth doesn't make good heart sense and it doesn't even make good economic sense. Because why would you want to connect your heart to something that moths and rusts destroy, something that loses so much of its face value the second you walk out of the store? Don't do it, Jesus says. It doesn't make good heart sense for you to tie your heart to things that aren't going to last. And all I know, folks, is that all of us have learned this in life. I was reading a, a book a while back, and in this book, the guy told a story of one of his friends who had his heart set on a motorcycle. Some of you can relate. And so haggling for a half day at the dealership, he got the lowest price, and he bought it and went home. The only thing was is that he forgot to tell his wife that he was buying a motorcycle. And as you can imagine, she went ballistic, and she basically said, take it back or we're through. And so he went back to the dealership and he said, here's the keys. It's only got five miles on it and I've only owned it for an hour and a half. And after a few moments of dickering, they bought it back for him at $500 less than what he paid for it. With five miles on it, an hour and a half later, 500 bucks. And that story does not surprise the majority of us because all of us have learned this in life that most of what we buy loses its value the minute we walk out of the store. It depreciates from that point on, and it's susceptible to moths and rust and all kinds of things. And so please see what Jesus is saying, folks. He's saying, why would smart people like you orient your time and your energy and your affections and your loyalties for the acquisition of stuff that's deteriorating and depreciating? He's saying, come on, you're smarter than that, and your heart is way too fragile uh, to set it on something that's going to depreciate and deteriorate. Don't do it. 
There's something much better that I have for you to pour your life into spiritual realities that you were originally made for when it comes to knowing me and following me. That's what Jesus says. And then think about the second principle he gives us here, what I call the it-might-get-stolen principle. Jesus is simply telling us that earthly treasures, because they're material in nature, are vulnerable to theft and loss. It's like he's saying, haven't you realized yet that in this fallen world, all of the material things that you own are going to fall prey to people who don't obey the Eighth Commandment, which says, thou shalt not steal. And the reality is, is that you and I know that as well, living in our material culture, that we have things one day, but then the next day they might just get stolen. I was up in Flagstaff yesterday with my two daughters, helping one of my daughters move into an apartment. She's going to NAU. And at one point, I uh, went to fill up the car on gas, and when I got to the gas station there, I, I filled up and went inside, and I used the restroom, and I set my cell phone down on the, uh, the, the sink next to the, uh, right there by the sink when I was washing my hands. And uh, I forgot it there, and I, and I left my cell phone in the bathroom there. And about 45 minutes later, I was driving down the road, and I wondered where my cell phone was, and I realized I left it in the bathroom there. And so we turned around, and we head back toward Flagstaff, and when I got there 45 minutes later, uh, I went in the bathroom, and let me ask you, do you think it was there? No, it was gone. So I went to the guy at the counter, and I said, did you find a cell phone? Do you think he found a cell phone? No, it was gone. Somebody had found it, and, and like a thief who doesn't obey the Eighth Commandment, he took it. And uh, I even called it, and uh, I was hoping he'd pick up, and I'd say, thief, give it back, or something like that. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I called it, and it rang, and it rang, and it rang, and turned it off yet. So I called it again, and I called it again, and I thought, that guy's probably just enjoying this, isn't he? Because he stole my cell phone. And uh, I, I just prayed curses upon him. And uh, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't do it. I called AT&T and I had it shut off. And I'll get a new cell phone. Not a big deal. It's just a material thing. But things like that happen to you and I all the time. We live in a world in which things get stolen. They just don't last. But we've learned that in life so far. And so Jesus simply says, capitalizing on that, don't allow your heart to get too attached to these earthly treasures. You're too smart, you're too valuable for that kind of attachment. There's something much better for your life and for your soul. Spiritual things is what he's after. Now, as you're chewing on that, notice to me a second thing that Jesus gives us in this primer on materialism. And this thing's kind of sobering, but he's going to end on a glorious life-giving note. But this thing's important to realize too, and that's that he tells us that material things deaden the soul, while spiritual things give life to the soul. But we're going to want to dial into this. This is a key part of his teaching here. That material things, if we make those things the focus of our life, though they seem to give us excitement in the moment, end up having an actual deadening effect on our lives. Whereas spiritual things, the things of God, tend to give life to our soul. Look at what he goes on to say in verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, this is a very interesting and revealing analogy that Jesus is giving you and me here. Listen very closely. Likening our soul and its focus to that of the physical eye, he's telling us that just as the eye takes in light, and that light illumines our mind to the things around us and helps us understand our environment, 
but that if your eye is bad, it can receive only darkness and you won't understand your environment. He says the soul, the heart and spiritual core of an individual, of an individual also gazes out. And if it gazes out on things of light, in this context, spiritual things, uh, then it will be full of light. But if it gazes out on darkness, again, in this context, only material things, then darkness it will be. Don't miss this, folks. He's telling us that the soul that makes its life only about the material world or primarily about the material world and gets caught up in it will be darkness. And the materialism will deaden it and make it numb and dark. But a soul that learns to focus its gaze on the spiritual kingdom of light, the truths of Jesus, his relationship with him, fellowship with each other, pour your life into something purposeful as you follow and know him, then your life is going to be full of light. And you know what I find amazing? Is that most of our culture today that's still mired in and experiencing the soul-deadening effects of a material-only focus knows intuitively and has found intuitively exactly what Jesus is talking about here. In other words, you look closely at our world today and you read closely to some of the secular magazines and you'll find that when people are honest with themselves, they admit exactly the point that Jesus is making here. All of you know who Brad Pitt is. He's the famous actor, one of the most famous actors alive today. A few years back, he was being interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine. And at one point in the interview, they asked him how it feels to be living the American dream. I had to read on. Listen to what he says. Look up here on the screen. This is so revealing. He says, man, I know all these things. Give me a click here, guys. He says, man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all this. We got to find something else. Because all I know is that at this point in time, we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being, and I don't want that. Interesting. But Rolling Stone responded by saying, so if we're heading toward this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? Now I want you to listen very closely to what Pitt says at this point. This is very sad, but this is the extent of what our material-focused culture tends to answer. Look up here on the screen. He says, hey man, I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. Then he smiles. I'm sitting in it and I'm telling you that's not it. I'm the guy who got, who's got everything. I know. But I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're left, just left with yourself. I said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better and you don't wake up any better because of it. Folks, don't miss what's right before you right now. You got a man, Brad Pitt, on the precipice. He's on the precipice of a guy who's detaching his life from all the physical, material things of this world because he's realizing they've left him empty, but he has yet to attach himself to the words of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, that Jesus himself said can give us spiritual life. And this is where so many people are at today. And this is exactly what Jesus warned us about. He said, if you store up treasures on earth, set your heart and affections on the things of this world, it's going to leave you empty. It's going to deaden your soul. It's like gazing upon darkness. Only a focus 
on true spiritual things of heaven and God will bring your soul back from death and from darkness to light. And that brings us to the question of what is that about then? What can we really do to combat materialism in a materialistic culture and experience this light for our soul? And it's the third thing that Jesus shares with us here this morning. And here it is. And that is that we need to each realize and own that materialism is not a matter of money. It's a matter of mindset. And if you and I can develop a mindset that resists the lure to give our soul over to material things and develop a mindset that then chooses to give our soul over to God and to the life-giving things of Jesus first and foremost, then we are in the circle that God wants us in. I want you to look with me one last time at Matthew chapter 6 and what Jesus goes on to say since he's already talked to us about storing up treasures and the soul seeking light, not darkness. Look at what he goes on to say next in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then that famous statement of his, you cannot serve God and money. Or some of your translations say God and mammon. And so check this out, folks. The obvious context here is talking about a person who cannot wholeheartedly give themselves to two people at the same time. We'd all agree with that, right? I mean, you can only have one first place thing in your life. And Jesus is saying that when it comes to this, you can choose either God or money to have first place status in your life, but you can't have both. There's only one superlative. Only one can take the most room in your life. And I find it interesting that Jesus uses the word serve there. He says you cannot serve both God and money. It's interesting. He's not saying that you can't have both God and money. Don't be duped by that. He's not saying that you can't be wealthy. He's not saying that you can't be blessed. He's just saying that no matter how wealthy or blessed you are, at the end of the day, you can only serve one of them. Because you see, that which you serve is that which takes the affections or the most affections of your heart. It's that which consumes the focus of your life. And so let us remind ourselves by Jesus' words here that having and enjoying money, and even having and enjoying a large amount of money, is not wrong or bad. In fact, other parts of the Bible call that a blessing. What's wrong, according to Jesus here, is serving money, allowing it to take on a life of its own, becoming a controlling influence in our lives, rather than us controlling it for the glory of God and for his kingdom. And so maybe now you can see why I so often say that it's not the avoidance of materialism that is the core here. It's a mindset of how you approach the material things in your life. That's what Jesus is after here. And this is why also that we need to note that being a materialist does not matter how much money you have. In fact, I know lots of people that are dirt poor and they're materialistic, and I know other people that have lots of money and they're not very materialistic. Because, see, I know dirt poor people that are, you know, say, bringing home twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year, and yet they're always focused on that next lottery ticket. They're always focused on that next acquisition. Their whole life revolves around material things. And consequently, I know other people that have been blessed greatly, but they've resisted the temptation, the mindset, to allow material things to take first place status in their soul. And hence, I would not label them material people. They're very generous people. And so hopefully you're starting to see that materialism is more about a, a mindset here than anything else. 
Now look at how Jesus goes on to wrap up this section. It's kind of lengthy, but it's, it's right to the point. Look at verses 25 through 34. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Then his famous question, he says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, there's a lot going on in, in this, these words of Jesus here. And, and aside from all the wonderful analogies and word pictures, here's what I want you to dial into the most here this morning. And that is that I find it interesting that in these 10 verses here, Jesus is clearly contrasting the anxious life focused on material things with the spiritual life that is focused on the kingdom of God. Did you notice the contrast there? Five times in 10 verses, he uses that word anxious. Five times in verses 25, 27, 28, 31, and 34. And if you were to read the Bible in the original language that it was written in, the Greek language, you would realize that that Greek word literally means, now get this, to take no thought of. To take no thought of. It carries with, this, uh, with the, the sense of not being concerned about something, of not allowing your mind to focus and care about the things that you shouldn't focus and care the most about. Take no thought of. And so in this context here, what Jesus is saying then is that when it comes to food and clothing and money and any other physical thing that you would have a natural concern for in your life, when it comes to comparing it to spiritual things, take no thought of these things. Don't allow your mind to unduly focus on them and allow them to become the drive of your life because you got a choice. And in your choice, you choose to not allow these things first place status in your soul. You don't make them the focus of your life. No, what you do is you make spiritual things the focus of your life because you realize you've got a choice. You're either going to take the majority of your time and energy and invest them in the spiritual world, or you're going to take the majority of your time and energy and invest them in the physical world. And the cool thing about this, folks, is that even if your life is mired in the physical world, as most of us, if not all of us, are, I mean, we're not monks in a monastery, or monks, uh, are monks in a monastery? I don't even know. Anyways, we're not monks. The reality is, is that we're in the world, but not of it. So we're in the world doing our physical stuff, but in our mindset, we're focused on God. In our energy, we're focused on God. In what we say and we do, we're keeping God primary and the priority of our life. As I've been talking here for the last 30 minutes, I, I know a lot of you. I've been here about three years, and I know Rick, and I, and I know you guys here. I know what's your name, and I, and I know you guys. And, and I know that you're mired in the physical world every day. But you need to know my hope for you and my prayers, your pastor, is that as you're in the world, you're just not of it because you heed the words of Jesus. And you realize that life is found in relationship to him, not in selling your soul to the physical things of this world. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to bring home to us. In fact, this is so cool. You guys know I get excited about the, the logic and flow of the text here. Look at, uh, give me another click here. Look at one more time what, what Jesus is doing here in verses 26, 30, and 33. Give me another click. He says in verse 26, and talking about birds and food, he says, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In other words, it's a no-brainer. When it comes to food or trusting God, trust God. And then talking about flowers and clothes. He says, but if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? So when it comes to clothes or God, choose God. And then summing it all up in verse 33, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the knockout punch right there. Tying together our value in his eyes, his incredible love and grace toward us as our Father, and then calling us to a life of faith. Jesus is clearly telling us that the mindset, the demarcation line of somebody who has gone from materialism to a true follower of God is one who first and foremost trusts him and seeks him, first and foremost with everything in them. And folks, that's something each one of us can do each moment of each day. We can look to him with the eyes of our heart, focusing on him as we go about our business and activities. It's something we can all choose to do. It's just an issue of priority. I want to close this morning by reading you a story from uh, John Ortberg. John Ortberg is the senior pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church over in Simi Valley. And, uh, and no, it's not Simi Valley anyways, it's just south of San Francisco Bay Area. And, uh, and, and he's a wonderful writer and author. And he tells a story in one of his uh, writings about his grandmother and a lesson that she taught him. And I think you're all going to relate to this and you're going to like this. He says, my grandmother taught me how to play the game Monopoly. Now, my grandmother was a wonderful person. She raised six children. She was a widow by the time that I knew her well. She lived in our house for many, many years, and she was a lovely woman, but she was the most ruthless Monopoly player I've ever known in my life. He says, imagine what would have happened if Donald Trump had married Leona Helmsley and they would have had a child. You would then understand my grandmother. He goes, she understood the name of the game of Monopoly is to acquire. When we would play the game when I was a little kid, I'd get all my money from the bank and I'd want to save it, hang on to it, because it was just so much fun to have all that money. She, however, spent everything she landed on. And then when she bought it, she would mortgage it as much as she could so that she could buy everything else that she landed on. She would accumulate everything she could, and eventually she became the master of the board. He goes on to say, and every time I landed, I would have to pay her money. And eventually, every time she would take my last dollar, I would quit in utter defeat, and then she would always say the same thing to me. She'd look to me and say, Johnny, one day you'll learn to play this game. I hated it when she said that to me. But one summer, I played Monopoly with a neighbor kid, a friend of mine, almost every day, all day long. We played Monopoly for hours. And that summer, I learned to play the game. I came to understand that the only way to win is to make a total commitment to acquisition. I came to understand that money and possessions, that's the way you keep score in this game. And by the end of that summer, I was more ruthless than my grandmother. I was ready to bend the rules if I had to to win that game, and I sat down with her that fall to play her in Monopoly. He goes on to say, slowly, cunningly, I exposed my grandmother's vulnerability. Relentlessly, inexorably, I drove her off the board. He says, this game does strange things to you. I can still remember it happened at Marvin Gardens. I looked at my grandmother. 
She taught me how to play the game. She was an old lady by now. She was a widow. She had raised my mom. She loved my mom. She loved me, and I took everything she had. I destroyed her financially and psychologically. I wanted to give her, I, wanted, I watched her give her last dollar and quit in utter defeat, and it was the greatest moment in my life. <laughs> now listen to what he says. He says, and then she had one last thing to teach me. After we got finished with this game, she said, now it all goes back in the box. All those houses, all those hotels, all the railroads, all the utility companies, all the property and all the wonderful money, now it all goes back in the box. He says, I didn't want it to go back in the box. I wanted to leave the board out, bronze it maybe, as a memorial to my ability to play the game. No, she said, none of it was really yours in the first place, Johnny. You got all heated up about it for a while, but it was around a long time before you sat down at the board, and it will be here long after you're gone. Players come and players go, but it all goes back in the box. What a great lesson for you and I to learn, that someday we're going to die, and when we die, it all goes back in the box. You're not taking any of it with you. said that when John D. Rockefeller died, that was at a time when they used to read wills of famous people publicly. And as they were reading John D. Rockefeller's will, a man walked by the radio or the television, and he, he missed what they said about his will, and he yelled to the crowd. He said, what did he leave? What did he leave? And somebody yelled back, he left everything. He didn't take any of it with him. And that's the truth, that someday you and I are going to stop living, and we're going to go on to the next world where we're going to face God. And the number one question is going to be, what did you do with Jesus? The number one question God is going to ask you is, did you or did you not accept my son, his death on the cross for your sins, and become a follower of him so that you may enter into eternal rest with him? And if and as you do that, and I hope all of you have and will, you'll take nothing from this world with you. Nothing. And so let the logic of Jesus, again, pierce your heart and mind. Then why would you make your life about physical and material things? Why would you sell your soul to those things? Don't do it. He's got something much better for you. Let's pray. Father, as you know, we rally in this church around the words of Jesus. We rally in this church around the teachings of the Bible. That's why we've called ourselves Scottsdale Bible Church. And Lord, hopefully today we've seen, at least in a small measure, one of the reasons that we do that, and that's it because in Jesus are the words of eternal life. In him is the way to eternal life. And we've just seen a little bit of that today. And Father, we're going to go to the communion table in just a minute here and celebrate what we fondly call the Lord's Supper or communion. And God, I pray that these elements that we will be partaking in might once again uh, remind us of what our faith is really about, and that's Jesus Christ. His body, His blood, which has brought us to you. And Father, as we celebrate that, might we also be prepared for the week ahead in such a way, Lord, that we would not give our soul over to things that can be stolen, over to things that moths and rust are going to steal, or moths and rust are going to destroy. But the Father, we would give our soul over to you, first and foremost, as we follow and trust you. We thank you for that instruction today. We thank you for the hope that you give to each and every one of us. We want to continue our worship now, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Our servers are going to come forward now, and uh, they're going to hand out to you a piece of unleavened bread and some juice, very, very similar to Jesus' last meal when he was on this earth, at least his last meal before his death and his resurrection. 
And uh, as you get these elements, we'd ask you to hold them, and uh, we're all going to partake together. I've asked Troy to sing a song for us that all of you are familiar with, but we're not going to put the words up on the screen. I want you just to listen and to use this as a time between you and the Lord to just focus on your relationship with Him. Where's your life right now? And it maybe even re-cement or cement for the first time your belief and trust in Him. And then once we're all served, hold the elements, we'll all partake together.
that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that they were eating and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you and whenever you eat, remember me. In the same way, he took the cup that they were drinking. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. Whenever you drink, remember me. God, our Father, indeed in this moment, and hopefully throughout the days and weeks ahead, we remember your Son, Jesus, in such a way that our faith is bolstered, our faith is cemented and deepened, and we realize that he alone holds the words of eternal life, the pathway to eternal life. And so, God, as we go now, in the name of your Son, Christ, we pray that we might be encouraged, knowing that he never leaves us and forsakes us, that if you've said that if God is for us, who can be against us? We know that. We take great hope in that. So, God, bless us. Walk with us. Encourage us till we meet again. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and his precious name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.